Welcome to the Grace Point Church Podcast. Here at GPC, we want you to know God, love people, and live sent. From wherever you're listening, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. If you want to learn more about Grace Point, head over to gracepointchurch.net. And now, this week's message. Every week on the reg, we're trying to point people to that awesome guy that we just sang about. And we're going to do that because we have an awesome book that he provided for us. Actually, it's one book, 66 books uh, contained in that one book. But this one book is, I know it's old. I know it's outdated in some people's minds. I know it's like a way I don't understand it. You got to realize that what God has given us and what we're really building our church on every week, week over week, is the contents, the message inside of this book. It was written over three continents. Men and women wrote it, 40 different authors over a a span of 1,500 years. And yet, in all of that diversity, in all of that complexity, we can still look at the Word of God and know that the Bible doesn't contradict itself ethically, theologically, uh, doctrinally, uh, historically, scientifically, philosophically, or morally. I know it's a big statement when I say that, but it's really, I believe it to be true. And I also will say this about this book that we're going to every week, every week on the week, we're going to focus our attention on on Wednesday night. Our students are going to do that is we can go back to this book. I think consistently and say that this book is trustworthy. The Bible is a trustworthy, reliable, true. And as you will definitely see today, it is relevant. So anybody who'll tell you that this book is not relevant needs to reopen it, re-engage it, because it is. We've been in this series, if you're joining us for the first time uh, in a while or whatever, we've been in a series called But God, How God's Grace Interrupts Our Life. Sometimes it's an intervention interruption, sometimes it's an intervening in a situation uh, of our life that uh, we need some intervention in or, or interruption in, but it's always, always, always His grace. Is his grace that's interrupting our life. And, and when that happens, I've never heard anybody, and again, 32 years I've been doing what I'm doing right now, uh, I've never heard anybody tell me, yeah, I really regret experiencing the grace of God. I've never once. I've heard people regret the life that they chose, the decisions that they made, but never experience the grace of God. Well, if you take the book of, uh, uh, of Ephesians, just one of the 66 books, in fact, you can start finding it. It's back about halfway through, about three quarters of the way through the, through the Bible, maybe more than that. I didn't actually measure it up before I just started saying that. But it's in the back, in the middle part of the New Testament. But in the, in the New Testament, you'll find the book, a letter called Ephesians. Now, when you look at Ephesians, you got to kind of take it and divide it down the middle. Take a, take a knife, a scalpel, just cut it right down the middle. Because really, it's first four chapters, first three chapters is really dealing with God's grace work in us. Okay? It's this horizontal relationship connecting with God and His grace working in us. Now, where do I get this? You go to, again, the first three chapters and you find this statement. And this is kind of, I think, the, the, the pinnacle of all the statements in, in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and verse 5. Let's put it up on the screen and let's look at, let's look at this. It says, but God. Now, obviously, that's the title of the series. And nine different times you'll find but Christ, but the Holy Spirit, but God all throughout uh, the, 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 the letter here. But it says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love. He loved us. 
And even though we were dead in our trespasses, even though we'd mess things up, even though our life sometimes is a dumpster fire and we make bad decisions and bad choices, he made us alive with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is the God trifecta, okay? When God is at work and the trifecta is in place, it is his mercy, not giving us what we do deserve, his grace, giving us what we don't deserve, and it's all motivated by his love. This beautiful trifecta is what, how God interacts with us, how he vertically interacts with us, and how we connect with him. That's the first three chapters. We're in chapter four today. The second half of the letter is more of a horizontal working, okay? But here, before we go any further, let me just say this. Some of you in this room are like, I need that. I need God to butt God my life. I need God to interrupt, intervene, interject into my life. I need that mercy. I need that grace. I need that love. And let me just say this before you leave here today, please say this to Jesus. Jesus, I want you. I love you. I believe in you. I'm giving my life to you. I'm, I'm trusting that your death on the cross did all of that right there and his demonstration of your love for me and your resurrection gives me life. Again, there's a lot of words there. If you just want somebody to pray with you, walk with you through that this situation, I had somebody come up after the first service and give me their card. I'm going to reach out to them this week. There's a card in the seat back pocket. You can scan this QR code and actually look on our digital online bulletin. The reason I point you to that, it has everything on there that we're going to talk about today, anything you're going to hear about, whatever. It's all of our activities, plus it has the notes of the message that you can kind of follow along. But but in there, there's a, there's a little form. If you want to say, hey, pray for me. I got a prayer request. You can put a prayer request in there. But one of those things that you can connect with us on, and it says, I'm beginning a relationship with Jesus. Just check that. Let us know. We want to pray with you. We want to walk with you. Because we want everybody to have this vertical grace work of God, his mercy and his love and his grace in our life, working in our life. But then there's this horizontal, that's where the second half of Ephesians kind of comes in. And that's where his grace is working on us. And aren't we all a work in progress? Hopefully we're in progress. Hopefully we're not stuck. But his grace starts working on us. And when I say he's working on us, I'm talking about there's not a corner, there's not a crevice, there's not a cupboard, there's not a container, there's not a bucket of your life that his grace isn't wanting to work on. Whether it's marriage we're going to talk about in a few weeks or it's parenting we're going to talk about in the months ahead. It's, it's like his grace is always in there. We talked about last week about the lies that we live and the lives that we live out, the lies that we live out in our lives that we have to kind of set ourselves free from. And, and so it's like the, the, his grace is going to work on us and it's going to work in us. Let me show you chapter four. We're, we're, we're not going to spend much time on this, but I just want to show you the kind of work that he's wanting to work on us with. And I don't know anybody who's not going to want to be this person or be married to this person or have kids like this, okay, teenagers like this. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind. Just be kind. Be kind. But let me just say this. That, that's a command, but, but you, don't, you don't just turn on and turn off kindness. You can fake it, but you don't fake it till you make it. It's nothing you're going to do in and of yourself. What needs to also be there is a tender heart. See, kindness flows out of a tender heartedness. Kindness flows out of a person who's offloaded the baggage of hurt and pain and betrayal, and they've learned to forgive. Wow, the freedom that comes through learning to forgive. 
It's, it's incredible. That's what we're aiming at. That's what the work of grace of God working in us in this horizontal work of grace. That we're, that's just one sampling snippet that we want to be at. We want to get to. We want to get there. But we can't be at verse 32 until we verse, deal with verse 26. So find that. We'll be at verse 26 today. Before we read that, I want to... I want to say, say, I think what his grace, God's grace is trying to do in us. It's what I want to wake up every morning and I want to live my, my day every day where I am looking, listening, leading, and loving a little more like Jesus. Looking, listening, leading, that's my speaking a little more like, and loving, a little more like Jesus. Wouldn't that make a sweet person to be around? Somebody who's looking, living, listening, and I can't get all the words now. More and more and more like Jesus. Just a little bit every day. He was just working on me. And and what you're going to see in these two verses today is going to touch at where we all need to look, lean, Listen, lead, and love more like Jesus because I don't know if you've watched the news lately. I don't know if you've been in the neighborhoods lately. I don't know if you've been in any social media rants with other people, but we're living in a mad, angry, hostile, violent, aggressive world. You see it? You feel it? It's palpable. It's, it's, it's an aroma that stinks. We're going into an election. It's not going to get any easier, guys and gals. It's not going to get any easier. I look at mass shootings. They're happening almost every week. Unruly airline passengers, disorderly customers, reckless drivers on the road, road rage. The way we talk to people sometimes in the service industry, it's a wonder that they don't need counseling on the reg. Like there are servants, just because in the service industry, the way the politicians have taken anger, motivation, not anger management, anger, motivation, and elevated, it's on steroids. The way people are motivated out of their anger, Lisa McLean, a psychiatrist at the Henry Ford Health Clinic, has said that, that, that this ongoing pandemic and the financial situations and the polarization of people's ideologies and conspiracy theories and the threats of personal insecurity have contributed to this ongoing heightened tension that is in the air. What do we do with that? Paul gives us some very clear directions. And if you'll notice, these words on the screen are very relevant for us today. I want you to read them out loud with me. Okay, ready? Let's go. Be angry. Do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, in that one to two section, two verses there, there are four highlighted words. Those four highlighted words are four imperative commands in the Greek. Now, why is that important? Because in the first four to three chapters of Ephesians, I told you last week, was all verbs written in the indicative, action that happened in the past that has ongoing consequences, okay? His mercy, his grace, and so forth. Salvation happens in the first. This section, chapter four and following, 
All the commands, or most of the commands, are written in the imperative. They're calls to actions. They're calls to what we need to do in our life. How we live and interact with people. How we horizontally connect with others and the grace of God works inside of us. I want us to look at this and see, really, this is the 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 basic 101 anger management class. And if we take these four imperatives and we understand them, we will handle anger on a much more biblical and godly manner. And I pray to God that we will look, listen, lead, and love more like Jesus. Let's look at them. Imperative command number one is be angry. I'm calling them, I'm calling these guardrails. But notice the furry verse guardrail is go get angry. Okay, that's not something that needs a whole lot of instructions on. We do a good job with that. Again, in our world. Anger, though, we've got to understand what anger is. It's not just go, go out and be angry and go out and blow up and go off and, and let your steam off. And, 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 no, 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 no. He's speaking of a specific kind of anger. And we've got to understand what is the anger inside of us and what is it saying about us because this is the truth about anger. Anger is actually a secondary emotion and giving voice to a primary emotion. It's a secondary emotion. You feel the anger, but why do I feel the anger? Anger is an emotional response to something that's going on. Maybe it's stress. Maybe it's two years of living under stress. Maybe it's hurt. Maybe it's frustration. Maybe it's betrayal. Maybe it's despair. Maybe it's sadness. That is the primary The secondary is that because I feel that way and because you stepped on a sore spot in my life, I'm going to be angry at you and I'm going to let you know that you crossed the line with me all along that there's a deeper issue going on inside. I've got to deal with that. Anger, not all anger is bad. Anger creates creativity. Actually, you kind of get in a tough situation. You get angry. and you I'm going to get out of this. And it's fight or flight. It builds this energy. And you get away from, from bad, dark places in life. Revolt against injustice comes out of anger. We're going to rise up against this lie, this falsehood, this conspiracy. We're going to get away with that. God himself got angry. In fact, if you look at the scriptures, it's the second most common emotion contributed connected to God. The first one is love. The second one is anger. We learn a lot from Jesus and his anger. Anger one is, is that, um, that um, he got angry in the temple twice because they were not making it, it was an injustice. It was not what God intended it to be. There's another time, and get a little more in the details, in Mark chapter three, whenever there was a time when Jesus was walking into the synagogue, I believe it was, on a Sabbath day. And there was a man with a withered hand, and the Pharisees are watching him. They're trying to entrap Jesus, okay? He's walking into this situation. They know this. Jesus is this healing kind of guru guy. They're not calling him God. He Guru kind of healer guy. And, and then we got the Sabbath. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to entrap him. So that if he heals on the Sabbath, he's breaking the law. If he doesn't heal, he's a non-compassionate miracle worker. So it's like, lose, lose. I can't win in that situation. Jesus sees all through it. He reads it like a quarterback reading the defense on the other side of the line. And this is his emotional response. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart. 
Now, I think it's really important that you see that Jesus had a primary and a secondary. His secondary was that he was angry. The primary is that he's grieving. He's like, why, guys, can you not see this man with the withered hand? Why, guys, are you so caught up in the law? Why are you so majoring on the minors and missing out on the majors? Why is that? And you just see Jesus' anger at you also time. See Jesus' grief over the situation. But hey, how many parents in the room today? Raise your hand. Have you ever been angry with your kids and like to wring their neck? You don't have to keep your hands up because I know it would stay up. You're angry, but you're actually grieving. Why do they keep doing dumb? I mean, I made the same mistakes. I warned them against it. They do it anyway. There is an emotion that is below the anger, stress, exhaustion, betrayal. That's where you need to get to. Why do you feel angry? Here's a time when Nehemiah, incredible story of Nehemiah. Don't have time to go into it, but first five chapters, you have Nehemiah living in this incredibly affluent situation, working for the king, a trusted man, all that kind of stuff, all kinds of influence and trust. And God calls him back to an impoverished people. He literally goes from a white-collar job to a blue-collar job. He has brick in his hand and mortar in his other hand, a trowel, and he is, he is rebuilding the wall. He went from a cush job to a hard, back-breaking job. And he's giving it his all, and, and God is great, and we see that in chapter 1, and we see the work is great in chapter 4, but then we see the cry is great in chapter 5. Because what had happened is the, the haves and the have-nots, the haves were charging this exorbitant amount of money on interest to the have-nots so that they could rebuild their life, but they were going to make money off of them rebuilding their life in an ungodly kind of manner. In fact, to the point, here's how bad, how bad it was. You can read chapter 5. They had to literally use their children, their daughters, as collateral. If you don't pay your bills, we're going to come and take your daughter and make her our slave. That's how bad it was. Well, how does Nehemiah respond to this? Read it for yourself. Chapter 5, verse 6 of Nehemiah. I was very angry. I was very angry when I heard the outcry of these words. I think that there's a time that we need to understand that there's a justifiable anger. But we have to keep asking the question, why? Not just am I angry and can I justify my anger? The best thing you can do is get other godly people in your life and run it through them and say, no, 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 dude, you're, you're the wrong. No, you don't have the right to be angry. Or you do. You have to work that out with godly people who will speak objectively into your life and to the word of God. Let's talk about guardrail number two. Be in control. You ought never to lose control. Yeah, you need to feel your feelings. Why am I feeling this way? What's going on in my life? You need to control your feelings, your responses as well. Anger, again, is that secondary uh, uh, response. And people get angry differently, if you haven't noticed. There is the, the passive anger. That's the sulking anger. It may be 100 degrees outside, in July, but when you walk in the house, when somebody's sulking, it's 30 below. You're taking a road trip, you have, a, you have an argument with a person who's a sulker, that's going to be one of the quietest road trips you will ever be on in your life. It's a sulking 
okay? But then you have the aggressor. The aggressor's the one who's, you don't have to wonder where they feel. They've told you everything they feel about you, around you, uh, and everything else. And again, I'm giving you extreme examples. They may slam things, break things, just to make their point. And they'll justify it in so many ways. Oh, but then there's the passive-aggressive. This is the most toxic one, I think. This is the one that is passive-aggressive, so put it together. They're going to be nice to your face, but they're undercutting you back here. Beware of the passive-aggressives. There are 10 different anger expressions that are out there. Of the 10 anger, and I'm reading up on it this past week, only one of the 10 was considered a righteous anger. A righteous anger. I think Paul is trying to say this in chapter 5 of Galatians when he said enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions. That's that passive-aggressive. Kind of driving in there, trying to tear things down. Divisions, envy. That's internal. It's going on inside. You got the promotion I didn't get. I'm, uh, that is unacceptable. I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a pretty bold statement. But that is not Christ-like anger. University of Kansas had a football player named Dion Rayford. Uh, it's a few years ago, but he was in his senior year, and I don't know what happened that day, but it was not a good day. He goes to the Taco Bell line and uh, in his car, and he orders his food. He miss, was missing a chalupa. You know how important a chalupa is. So what he did is he drove back around, went back through the line, and this time, given the person on the other side uh, an earful, he climbs out of the window of his car, 270-pound lineman for Kansas, okay? He climbs out of his window into the serving window to get at the person on the other side, gets stuck in the window. The police come, they charge him with misdemeanors, he's kicked off the football team. That's not, if you don't get your chalupa the way you want it, not justifiable anger. When people's pride, positions, possessions, even when they get a performance, they feel attacked. You touched my cheese. You messed with my way of doing things. We respond with anger. It doesn't go our way at the restaurant. The service is slower than I demand. Again, I think what we have in our culture, our comfort culture, is that we've come so used to our comforts. When our comforts get messed up, we get angry. There's nothing about that that is righteous. In fact, it just points to the weakness inside of ourselves. Anger is not only permissible, but it always is controllable if it's going to be righteous anger. In fact, in Psalms 37, it says, refrain from anger. That tells me that I should have a lever in my, that I can throttle it back. I can pull it off. I can turn it off. I can actually choose not to be angry. This is supernatural stuff, guys. Okay, this is something you don't do on your own. You don't do this without Jesus. You don't do this without the Holy Spirit in your life. You don't do that with that constant voice in your head listening. Okay, humbly saying, okay, I am not going to go there. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. When I think about the fruits of the Spirit, we talked about that a little bit last week. We talked about that the first of the year in a whole series on the fruits of the Spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness. 
You get into those and you go drop anger in there, uncontrolled anger in there, it literally annihilates. It literally destroys like a toxicity into the pool of the Spirit of God flowing out of your life. You lose gentleness, you lose kindness, you lose self-control, you lose love, you lose your joy. My friends, anger that is not controlled is not godly anger. I want to go back to Nehemiah. Remember what Nehemiah was very angry, the injustice that was happening, the usury, the the, the slavery that was being put on them. He says, I was very angry when I heard the cry of these words. Notice the very next words. I took counsel to myself. I took counsel to myself. I didn't let it control me. I brought it under control. I know you in the business world get these kinds of trainings all the time, de-escalation trainings and how to uh, diffuse situations, and, and we all need those, right? We all need to realize that impulsive reactions is not the same thing as an appropriate response. Um, and the only way, it's more than an education you're going to get on the job and you're going to learn to perform there. It's whenever you learn to live it out at home with the kids, with your spouse, in your church, with your pastors, with your elders, with your friends, with your small groups. Whenever you start being the difference this world is not seeing, then we're talking about the Jesus flowing through you. So, yes, be angry. Yes, be angry, but be in control of that anger. Yes, be angry, be in control of that anger, and there must be limits. Number three, these are all guardrails to biblical anger management, if you will. You put your anger, and when you're looking at your anger, you ought to be able to use a stopwatch, not a calendar. Okay? Not one of those that anger goes on for days and weeks and months. You know, Lori and I have really learned how to have arguments. If we'll have all of our arguments around six or seven at night, it gives us a full 24 hours till the sun goes down. Just a thought. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. So there's a limit there. And if you really, it's like you really want to push the Bible into a literal state of mind, move to Alaska. Because there's several months out of the year that the sun never sets. You can go for months and be as angry. Listen, the point is, is that must stop. If I can refrain it, if I can pull back the throttle on it, if I can control it, if I can't control it, there's something wrong inside of me. I don't have a tender heart. I don't have a forgiving spirit. I'll never learn to truly be kind because I am so full of so many other emotions and brokenness and pain. So it's going to take some deep-seated work of the Spirit of God inside of us, working on us and working in us both. Um so sad when I look at some situations and dealing with enough marriages over time. It's how some people are hysterical and some people are historical in their anger. And how an argument that happens today, they will bring up something, no, kid you not, that happened two decades back here. And when that's what you live, you're not dealing with the anger. 
It's an ongoing something inside of you. You can mask it over. You might be able to taper it off, but it will come back up again. There are limits. Notice the time limits. There are limits. Even notice Nehemiah, whenever he's very angry, he takes counsel within himself. Okay? That was a beautiful statement, and I actually missed a great verse. In fact, guys, if you can find it, Psalm 4.4, I want to go back and point that out. Notice, this is where actually Paul gets the statement in Psalm 4.4. It says, be angry and do not sin. Now, notice the next thing he says to do. Ponder in your hearts. Ponder in your hearts and be silent. That's the time where you get it under control, get the emotions down. Now, let's talk about the limits. That limits of, uh, of not letting it take control of you, taking over you. So what, is, what does Nehemiah do? Nehemiah, uh, he, he took counsel with himself. He, he was very angry. And then the next thing he did is I brought the charges against the nobles and the officials. He took it through the judicial process. He went through the, the halls of justice. He, he dealt with them in, in a controlled, limited manner. If we don't see the, the impact that anger brings to our life, we are way missing it. Psalm 37, verse 8, out of the message, bridle your anger, trash the wrath, cool your pipes. It only makes things worse. Uh, James Averill, a professor at the University of Massachusetts, Amherst, has probably studied more about anger than anybody that I was able to find in my research for this message. 25,000 different Studies on anger, he cites, and he says this about anger. Anger does to your body something that is unsustainable and without limit, when you live it without limitations. See, if you don't limit your anger, your anger will run limitlessly in your life. You've got to control it because then what happens to your body, your body begins to fill it. Hypertension. You have greater pains in your body. You have increased anxiety. You have weakened immune system. It begins to affect you, the anger you have for that person over there. But that person did it wrong, but you're feeling the effects. So therefore, you need to understand that there's a control factor that you have to build in. There's levers. There's, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a limit to where you need to let anger go. But here's number four, and it is the most important. You need to be warned. Every time you get angry, you need to really examine the anger that's going on. And he, 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 he gives us a very stern warning. The only time this warning is mentioned anywhere in the Bible, it's mentioned right here. In fact, I have probably spent more hours this week looking at these seven English words, five Greek words, to understand exactly what it meant. It's so incredibly important, and these are the words and give no opportunity to the devil. Don't give a place for the devil. I literally want to break that down. Backward to the front. The devil, yes, I believe in a literal devil. He's mentioned throughout the scriptures, 37 times in the New Testament. He's a fallen angel. That was once, He was once the highest ranking angel. He fell whenever he tried to coup d'etat heaven. You can read about that. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 14, uh, you can read how the demon, demons fell in Luke chapter 10, verse 18. You can read in John chapter 10, verse 10, exactly what devils do, the, the, the dark side does. They come to steal, kill, and to destroy. So, I believe in a devil. 
I believe it's a spiritual being that is real and he has many working demons to service his diabolical schemes. This is what Paul, Paul is just getting us ready. He started actually in chapter one and we'll talk about that in a few weeks. He ends it in chapter six. In the entire chapter six, we're gonna deal with in January. And we're gonna have an entire series on one chapter of Ephesians and it's on spiritual warfare. And he's just literally dropping these little nuggets in Ephesians that's pointing to the fact that there's a dark side, there's a demonic side, there's an evil side, and it's not playing games. It's playing for keeps. We'll talk about that January 7th and kick that off. But what do we do with this? Because he also says it's not only the devil, it's the opportunity. That opportunity is the word topos in the, in, in the Greek language. It's used of all different kinds of topo. We get the word topography, a topography map. It's a place. When you ever have a topo map, you have a place and you have elevations and you're studying something. You're literally pointing to a place. In fact, other times in Scripture, in, in, in Hebrews chapter 8, it's a translated occasion. In chapter 14 of Luke, it's room. In chapter 14 of Matthew, it's place. Opportunity, place, room, occasion. Basically, it's this. Here's my life. And I give Satan a little corner of my life. As a follower of Jesus, I've given Jesus my heart, but have I given any part of my life? Maybe my past. Maybe my emotion. Maybe it's this one person that whenever that person walks into your life, your blood pressure begins to change. Maybe it's that one event that happened this past week. It's still seething underneath your skin. What am I going to Satan is loving it. And he is using that as his opportunity, his occasion, his place to set up residence. But don't miss the first phrase. Not to give or give no. It's stated in the name, don't give him. It's stated in the imperative, do not give him space. Do not give him opportunity. Do not give him a space in your life, a time on your calendar, a room in your home, a spot on your computer, an attitude in your life. Don't even let it, don't even give him a person in your life whether you hate that person, that person's living or not living. Don't give him a space. Louis Giglio has written a book, and you'll understand the title in a moment. He tells the story, the very first pages of the book, he tells the story of a time, in his words, he was misrepresented, he was abandoned, and he was wounded. Now, you just take any of those emotions into your life. Somebody has misrepresented you. Somebody has abandoned you. Somebody has wounded you. What are you going to do with that? What Louis does is it's happening in the time that he's starting Passion City and, and he's into it and his wife feel called to it and there are people lob, lobbing these things against him, misrepresenting him, wounding him, and he's feeling it. Guys, people feel it. They can, they can hide it, but it's sinking in. And he's feeling it. Finally, there was a day, and I, got, I, I cut this short, there's a day that it's vindication day, if you will. He was right. 
He was proven right. The, the assaults, the accusations, the betrayal weren't true. Man, he was happy. He takes his phone out. He starts texting his friend. He's so serious about it. He doesn't put any emojis in it. I mean, it's a serious text. And he crafts that text out. He sends it. He just knows. His friend's going to say, you were right all along, man. I know it. You ought to even the score. He's just waiting for some affirmation of his emotion of anger that he's been feeling. And you know what his friend sends back? Nine words. He's like, there's got to be more text coming in. He kept waiting for the bubbles to start appearing on the screen. Nothing. Just nine words. Nine words. Becomes a title of a book. These are the words that changed his life. He said, don't, this is what his friend wrote him, don't give the enemy a seat at your table. Don't give the enemy a seat at your table. If you are making space for anger to go on in an uncontrolled, unlimited manner, you have just given a space, a place, an occasion, a seat at your table. And you, know that, you, know, you, you know what he's going to do? He's going to justify your anger. He's going to stoke your anger. He's going to make you the victim all the way through. And you were right all the way through. And you're going to have that seat. And he's going to be there. And he's going to be stoking it on. He's going to be keeping it going because he's got to keep that anger brewing inside of you. And that anger is filtering like blood vessels throughout the rest of your body. And it's affecting you physically, spiritually, emotionally, and you're ready to give up on whatever it is. Listen, what does Jesus want to do? He wants you to be kind. How are you going to be kind? You're going to be kind because you're going to be tenderhearted. How are you going to have a tender heart? You're going to have a tender heart because you are going to walk away from the offense. You're not going to give the Satan a seat at the table. You're going to walk away and you're actually going to forgive that person even if they haven't asked for forgiveness. Why in the world would I do that, Mike? Because God did it for you. Because Jesus did it for you. You're going to set them free. Even in their shame and guilt and their wrongness of the because you've been set free. Do you know Jesus like that? That's why I say I don't know that you can live righteous, holy, godly anger outside of a relationship with Jesus. And Christians, followers of Jesus, people who've been born again already for years, listen, this is very real for you. Don't give the enemy a seat at the table. Would you bow your heads with me? If you're here today and you don't have that relationship with Jesus, this is like first conversation 101 for you about having a relationship with Jesus. I'm going to try to make it as simple, as clear as I can, and I will walk with you personally any way I can through this decision process. And that is, tell Jesus that, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I want you. Jesus, I need your forgiveness so that I can forgive. I need your freedom so I can be free. So I can help others be free. Jesus, I need your death, burial, and resurrection because that's the avenue of life in Jesus Christ. Just tell him in your own words. And do not leave here today before you tell someone 
If you put it on a card and give it to me, give it to me. Put it in the offering boxes on the back on the way out. Do it there. Reach out. We want to pray with you through this process. But Christians, followers of Jesus in this room, I know anger is real. What's that person that you need to set free? What's that situation that you need to let go of? Father, we can't do this without you. We need your interruption. We need to experience the but God in our life here and now so we can be free, so we can set others free, so that we can be kind and tender-hearted, walking in forgiveness just as you forgave us. God, help us to look, listen, lead, and love more like you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand and worship with us? Thanks for listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. To stay up to date on all things GPC, follow us at Grace Point NWA on Facebook or Instagram. As you go, be people who show and share Jesus in everyday conversations with everyday people. Live Scent.